Real people, real stories and real challenges that break the status quo. I'm your host, Jivila, and welcome to Perception Paradise. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Perception Paradox, the podcast where authenticity meets inspiration. I'm your host, Jivila, and I'm thrilled to embark on this journey together with you. This podcast was born from a simple question I asked myself a few years back. How can I amplify those incredible stories I encounter in my life and work and turn them into catalysts for change? And here we are today. It took some time to get here, but we were about to explore real people, their authentic stories, and the very real challenges they have overcome, and to get inspired to take action. Today, we kick off our first episode with an exceptional guest, Anissa Osman Britton. Anissa is an entrepreneur, speaker, and writer, known for founding 23 Code Street. Her insightful reporting at Sifset, where she is covering the startup life, and her latest venture, Brown Bodice. But before we begin, this podcast isn't just about showcasing achievements, it's about exploring the perceptions, worldviews, and pivotal moments that have led our guests to where they are today. So get ready to take a step into the fascinating world of perception as we embark on this inspiring journey together. Anissa, welcome to Perception Paradox. Thank you so much for having me. You are incredible. Ah, oh, you're incredible. Finally, we made it. I we don't. tried recording this episode, right? What? At Tech Barbecue a month ago, right? Yeah, but you know how these things are. They always fail initially. That's part of, that's part of the learning. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't agree more. So how are you feeling today? Really good. I'm excited that I'm your first guest. I feel like anything you do is hugely inspiring and exciting. So I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here and thank you. Thank you so much. It means the world to me. So what, what if we start with just a quick introduction about you? Maybe you can share with our listeners, who is Anissa? Such a good question. Um, I think there are three versions of me. There's the LinkedIn version that tells you about my work. Um, and so I started in tech over 10 years ago. I started out with a little company that I started straight out of kind of, I guess, 18 plus so college here in the UK. Um, some people call it high school. I then went to work at a corporate accelerator, which was my kind of first foray into the world of technology. And I realized that everyone was a man. So I started a coding school for women and those who kind of felt comfortable in women-focused spaces and ran that for seven years and then have done a bunch of other things like investment with Backstage Capital and Calm Fund in the US. Um, I report with Sifted on Startup Lifestyle. I have a newsletter there. And then I've recently started uh, Brown Bodies, which is all about sex in the South Asian diaspora. Um, so that's kind of the LinkedIn version of me. And then there's the the home version of me, the the version that my my parents would describe, um, which I think <laughs> is probably more real. Um, I'm the eldest of three girls, which means I am very tightly wound, didn't find fun until my 20s, and I'm completely 
obsessed with being the leader in every which way, shape or form. And I've had to learn how to like reel that back and relinquish some control. Um, I'm also incredibly like defensive over my sisters and I will kill anyone who talks badly of them. Don't ever threaten my sisters. Uh, I love how I'm holding a pencil at you. (laughs) (laughs) No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Okay. (laughs) And I live with my whole family. I live with three generations of family um, and we all co-care for my grandma. So family is like a very big part of my life. Um, And I'm mixed race. So I come from an Indian background on my mum's side and an English-Irish background on my dad's side. Um, But we are like a Muslim household. And I think that's so key to who I am and to the morals and kind of the things that have guided me both in my career and in my personal life. Um, Yeah. And then my friends will just say I'm a nutcase and never know what I'm doing and have a million things going at one time and never respond to WhatsApp. So depends who you want to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Thank you. I love those free stories. Well, about the WhatsApp. Yeah. It sometimes takes time, I guess. It takes time, but you still get back. So that's great. No problem. (laughs) But that's very interesting three perspectives of who you are actually i'm very curious a bit to dive uh, deeper because you have a very unusual start of your career right after just finishing your school and education you had a lot of friends who turned into this traditional way of education but you chose a different path can Mm. you dive a bit more into how did that happen and how we did not see you i don't know in cambridge but (laughs) we saw you traveling and then trying things out that's a really good question so i always presumed i would go to oxford or cambridge mainly because i loved harry potter and those were like the universities that seemed the most similar um so i always thought i'd go to uni i loved physics i loved maths i loved english literature and i loved theater which are all very kind of different subjects and i think when it got to the point where i had to decide it was like, well, which one do I do? I don't feel pulled in any specific way. Um, and so everyone else was making these incredible decisions of where they wanted to go. They seemed very confident. They were writing these theses around why they wanted to do that course, why they were so passionate about it. And I couldn't do that. There wasn't any part of me that had a passion for one specific thing. And it made me kind of question whether that was the right route for me at all. I always kind of say to my friends, like if I had grown up in the US and I could have done a liberal arts course where maybe you do lots of different things in the first two years and then you kind of specify, that would have maybe grabbed my attention and that's what I would have done. But that was never an option for me, nor kind of was I told that. Um, So I didn't go in the end. That's basically what happened. And my teachers were all unbelievably upset with me. They were, <laughs> some teachers didn't talk to me for a few months because they had, no way. It, was, it was insane. Um, my favorite teacher who has since invited me back to speak um, at the college, which is, I think, him making amends. Um, he was like, we have put so much time and effort. You have put in so much time and effort. Why are you kind of throwing away a future? Um So what I did instead was I told him and everyone else that I thought that there was potentially a route to build something myself. And I lived in Nottingham, which is kind of in the middle of the UK. Startups, I mean, I think we all knew of Skype, but the word startup hadn't infiltrated us. The word tech hadn't infiltrated. The IT room was very male-led. I didn't know coding um, or, or what coding was. 
apart from MySpace, like I loved messing around mm-hmm. with MySpace, which I think <laughs> is so many people's origin stories, right? So many of us. Oh, yeah. The, everyone started there. It's so great. I used to like love making the colors rain down and stuff. It was madness. I used to love Skype. I used to love Skype. Skype? I mean, like bad. you can chat with everyone and then you're like, we would ask, what's your Skype? <laughs> what's your Skype ID? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But like we have a lot of family in Tanzania and it was the first time we could connect with them and speak real time and see their faces. Um, so that was kind of in the background, but in, it wasn't quite in my head. So I didn't really understand. But I had grown up around people who ran very traditional businesses. So when we lived in India. Is that your family? Family and friends, mostly friends, uh-huh. to be honest. Um, when I lived in India, we had friends who ran hotels because it was very tourism kind of led Uh, my mum and dad ran a shop um, when we lived in Spain so I kind of grew up in lots of different countries Mm -hmm. randomly they ran how many countries was it three Uh, so we started in the UK we went to Spain we went to India then came back to the UK okay wow yeah yeah we're very lucky growing up Um, and it wasn't because my parents had any kind of specific jobs that moved them around they just wanted to explore the world and they worked so many different jobs and did lots of different things to make ends meet and I think that hustle kind of culture maybe that's the wrong word it was kind of built into me though at a really young age like there's lots of ways to make money you don't have to be in one very specific job Mm -hmm. and I think I took that and ran with it and I think my dad kept saying to me Anissa you can run your own thing you can run your own thing and I'm like dad shut up Like, I don't want to run my own thing. I want a nice job doing something. But he was right. I didn't want that. I did want to do my own thing. (laughs) Um, And so long story short, I was very lucky. I sent messages to family in different countries because also I wanted to travel. Mm -hmm. And I said, hey, can I come and live with you for a bit? Do you know anyone who potentially runs a business that would let me work there just to like learn? Um, And I did that for four or five months oh wow what was your first destination after high school uh i went to india first and i stayed Uh with my best friend um and she has a hotel um one of my best friends she has a hotel in goa um and her mom is probably one of my favorite mentors of all time she still is Mm -hmm. one of my best mentors of all time and she said to me kind of halfway through my experience working there we were watching the sunset. I had my favorite drink in hand, which was a banana milkshake. It was the <laughs> and she said, if you want to be the CEO, you also have to know how to do the jobs the lowest paid worker in your place does. You need to know how to clean the toilets as well as balance the books. Um, and I thought that was such great advice. And mm-hmm. I think I've taken that kind of through my whole weird entrepreneurial journey that no job is beneath you making money is making money (laughs) Um, and there's no real wrong way or better way to do that I guess yeah that's so interesting and so inspiring but like uh, I remember back then when I finished my high school uh, which was quite some time ago in (laughs) Lithuania where I'm originally from having a gap year or allowing yourself to just have a break was not an option because we are coming from a very hustling and hardworking country and environment. So the only way out was, or the only way through was through education. And we kind of gap here. No, it's a waste of time. We have to work, hustle. 
which obviously I think right now very differently than uh, what 12 years ago. What about uh, your case? How did your uh, family react that you decided not to proceed this normal way of education, but you kind of opened up for exploring the world? That's such a good question, um, because culturally, especially Indian culture, is very similar to the culture you describe in Lithuania. It was mm -hmm. my grandparents and my parents worked their asses off to get us get us, like me and my sisters and my cousins, more opportunities. And I think we took that really to heart. And my generation was meant to be the first generation to go to university, for example. I think my grandparents initially were very disappointed that I didn't go. Um, I think because they felt like I was giving up an opportunity for a very steady career and a very high-flying career. But my parents never ever felt like that. They always supported the fact that there were different ways of building careers. There were different ways of living life. There were different priorities around living life too, which I think they exemplified with their kind of journey. So I had a lot of support at home, um, which made it possible. I don't think I could have done it without. Gap year culture in the UK is very middle class. Like People taking a gap year to travel, to go and build orphanages in Kenya. And I say that with a lot of cynicism because I have mm -hmm. many thoughts about that. <laughs> and the people who can do that normally come from money. Um, so I think it was rarer 12 years ago. Yeah, maybe we left school at the same time. It was <laughs> rarer 12 years ago for people to come from more working class or lower middle class backgrounds to take that mm -hmm. year off. But what we were seeing, and we keep seeing an increase now, is the rise of internship and apprenticeship for those who aren't maybe necessarily academic. And I think that's kind of what I did. Even though I was academic, I kind of took that um, that thesis, that idea of apprenticeship to heart and used that. And I just learned from some of the best people, which now, 10 years or 11 years in the tech industry, you're like... This is everyone's kind of story. It's the thing that they push on everyone, the university dropout. And I hate that I feel like a bit of a cliche <laughs> when it comes to it. But that wasn't a narrative that was prominent um, when I was leaving. Do you think it's a good or a bad right now that there is such a narrative going that strong in, <laughs> in the world? It's a really good question. I think... I think there's a lot of good that we now know there are lots of pathways to success and that also success can be defined differently, um, whether that's monetarily or it's on based on time or family, whatever success means to you. Uh, I think the bad side of it is we have glamorized this idea of the dropout and the mm -hmm. dropout being someone really young who thinks that they can change the world with a few lines of code. Um, and I think Mark Zuckerberg is obviously the pinnacle of kind of that stereotype. And I think it's excellent. And I think it's great that we do have the ability to change the world now with code and also with the ability to build much easier. It's so easy, like with no code tools, with the cheaper lower barriers to entry to host things online, cheaper marketing, like access to education is so much easier. I don't think you need 
a marketing degree to do marketing, for example. Oh my God, I'm going to get cancelled for saying that, aren't I? Javila, <laughs> don't get but me cancelled. I agree with you. No, no cancel. No, can- no cancel culture in this podcast. We are open to all the opinions. We love it. And views. <laughs> Thank you. This is just my opinion. It doesn't reflect anyone yeah. else's. Um, I think, though, the balance of that is there is still a place for learning. And whether that's kind of that mainstream learning, the traditional form of learning, or self-personalized growth and creating your own courses and being very strict and um, routine about learning, you still need to learn. Mm. Because coming out of uni at 19, you, you know a lot of college, sorry, high school at 18, 19. There's so much we don't know. And I think And I think twofold. One, the naivety is great and it helps us build without being scared of all the failure. But I also think it's part of the reason we have a lot of tech that is harmful and that is biased and that hasn't taken into consideration the inclusion of the people they're building for or the people who they're building with, i.e. like their workforce. Um, So, yeah, twofold, twofold. It depends on the person. Okay, I agree. Yeah, I think it really depends on the person and we have to really think what kind of life we want to build ourselves and how risk aware are we and what form of education we want to take. Because I think sometimes with this dropout culture, we get this image that like, oh, I'm a dropout of university, but we forget to use other means of education, tools of education, and we just get stuck into a never ending experimentation phase where there is no exit because you don't improve yourself. Yes, I think there are very lots of positive sides of universities, colleges. It brings you into the communities. You kind of get the sense of belonging. You become part of something. But talking about education and, and coding, you mentioned a couple of times, you started 23 Code Street. Maybe you can also elaborate more without no coding knowledge. Am I right? And then you learn how to code. Or was it before? I learned before. Um, can I add one thing to your last question? Because I think it's really, you said something amazing there about education. I'm just going to quickly finish off on it. Oh, yeah, please. The other thing about the dropout thing that I think is under-discussed is networks at universities. If you don't come from money and your family doesn't have a network, that is kind of what you're paying for. In the same way as private school, your network is what gets you into so many doors. Um, and I think the other side of it is it de-risks certain things for people to be able to build within a system that is there to catch you if you fall being a dropout and not having parents you can rely on or being a dropout and having to support family these are not options these are not options a lot of people have and I think we often forget that this narrative isn't for everyone especially often migrant communities um, people with disabilities people who have older family members to care for And I just think we have to remember that as part of it. My story comes with a lot of privilege, right? Like I could Mm. take a risk on building 23 Code Street, for example, because if I failed and crashed and burn, I knew I had my parents home to go to and I could, I would be safe. Um, That's slightly different now. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a a very different scenario. Yeah, Yeah. it's a very different scenario. I I can't fail now because I have a house and I have family to look after. Um, So, yeah, I think it's it's an important point to bear in mind. In terms of 23 Code Street, um, I learned to code while I was running my first company. Um, 
I loved the fact that I had someone to build it for me, but I didn't love the fact that I didn't know what he was doing. Um, and I didn't love the fact that I felt like he was telling me it was going to take a month where it felt like <laughs> I could do it in a week, but maybe I just didn't understand. Um, so I wanted to understand and I started learning and I absolutely loved it. I would never say I'm an engineer. I would never say that I'm a software developer. What I would say is I'm a business person who has technical skills. Um, and it was just, it's played such a massive part in who I am and what I think is possible in the world. That's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. And now I would like to go back a bit what you've just mentioned before <laughs> getting into 23 Codesfeed because it just caught my mind and I, I think uh, maybe listeners as well would like to dive deeper. You just mentioned I can't fail right now, right? How does that affect you? When you're right now building, doing, doing new stuff, you kind of have to take risk, experiment, but when it's also, it's a big fear to have. How do you cope with it? Oh. Shavila, you've hit the nail on the head and it's a question I unpack with my therapist often. Um, mm -hmm. A bit like you, I'm very entrepreneurial and I've always made my own money my own way. Um, and I think when you buy a house, you have a mortgage to pay and that means you always have to have X amount of money coming in no matter what, otherwise you lose that house. And for me, losing that house would mean that I have seven people who would no longer have a home. They're all very smart. We would figure mm. it out, right? But the way I've dealt with it is this. I ensure that I have one or two permanent bits of work that cover my bare minimum. And then the rest of it is time to play and time to experiment. And I think, I think that is an excellent way to build a company in the early days. Having enough money and enough time, a balance of both, enough money but not too much money, enough time but not all the time to procrastinate, gives you mm -hmm. enough barriers, enough kind of constraints to focus. Because you know you have to do it in that time because the rest of the time is taken up by other stuff, whether that's family or whether that's another job. Um, so I think the constraints have made it easier to build again but the fear of failure made it harder to start mm. and how did you make uh, that starting point oh at some point you just have to jump um but yeah, it took me a lot can... longer this time <laughs> oh my goodness okay but you're you're already on the road speeding up and going on with your latest uh, projects and passions yeah yeah right? and it feels like yeah. it's building momentum and with every like momentum built the more confidence i have to be like oh yes this is yeah. who i am this is i've done this before you know i think yeah. linkedin is very scary because <laughs> you go on linkedin <laughs> and everyone has these amazing paragraphs of how well they're doing and how they did it and what you should be doing and the playbook for marketing or whatever it is. And I'm just like, oh, mm, mm, that's not what I did. GPT prompt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I understand you. LinkedIn became a very interesting playground and I kind of have a controversial feeling sometimes when I go there. But I think the way I'm dealing with it, I decided, well, follow who gives you knowledge and who inspires you and just do what you 
share what you would be happy to find out opportunities, knowledge, and so on. Uh, but talking about your latest venture and also impact and change you're contributing to the whole ecosystem, right? Well, you really had a remarkable um, impact on diversity in tech. Since the moment I met you, I always actually had one of the associations about you. Diversity, inclusion, you've been an advocate and very vocal about it. And also you've just launched a brown bodice. Where is that coming from? Where did you find the courage to speak up? Because we have so many predefined opinions and we are afraid to bring out something that is against the norms. Where is that coming? That passion and eager? Oh, that's, a, that's a really good question. But I think you, the, the context you put it in is probably the right context. Um, and a lot of people don't see that link, but it is that. I, everything I've done in my career has been how do we ensure that everyone has a say and everyone is like sat at the table when things are getting built for us. I'm not saying we all need to be building it, but we all need to be in different roles that reflects the experience of the wider kind of uh, society and ecosystem. And sex is no different. And I think growing up, popular culture, the media, and kind of music even, I guess that comes under popular culture, has always expressed sexuality from the point of uh, Eurocentric Western perspective. I think Western is even more important because if you look at somewhere like the Baltics, it's very different to say the UK and Germany, um, also given historical context and stuff. But we don't need to go into that. But what I found really fascinating was whenever we saw brown people represented it was on tv especially it was always being quite repressed or for example a muslim woman would wear a hijab and then she would be sexualized and suddenly her hijab would come off and now she's free you know and i don't think that reflects wider society experiences and i also felt like culturally my religion wasn't being reflected in the culture so my culture was very repressive sort of wider uh, diaspora Indian culture but my religion is very forward-thinking when it comes to women's rights around sex uh, and women's rights to pleasure and I was I also had really bad sex education at school and the mm. brown women often didn't talk about pain in sex. The brown women often didn't talk about vaginismus or the fact that they had really bad periods. It was all like kind of clouded in shame. And I think this all kind of came to a head over the last few years where I realized how much of that was inside me too, as someone who is quite expressive and quite extroverted and quite opinionated. I never talked about sex. I never discussed the impact it had had on me. I never discussed how angry I was at the fact that I never saw brown people on stage, on TV, in music being desired. And mm -hmm. I never heard us talk about pleasure. It's happening more and more now. Like, never have I ever on Netflix, like the first couple of seasons of Sex Education. We've got a few. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, I don't think the last season does that quite as well, but the first three seasons do that fantastically. So Brown Bodies basically became a place of me wanting to tell more stories of the South Asian diaspora and not just from a place of struggle and trauma. I want to tell the stories of joy, of pleasure, 
mm-hmm. of finding what this stuff means to us, of education. Um, and yeah, it's just really exciting to have so many people be willing to talk about something that's so uh, intimate in some ways, but also so universal in other ways. Um, I don't know if that answered your question. I went off the tangent. But no, no, I, that's beautiful. Uh, thank you for sharing also more about what brown bodies, uh, kind of what's the mission of the brown bodies. And maybe, mm-hmm. do you remember that uh, trigger point that made you to kind of come to this decision? Okay, I need to do something about that. I want to launch the media channel or the platform that people would ke- get a safe place to raise their voice and to share the experiences yes i know the exact moment um oh. it was three years ago uh so see it takes me a long time sometimes to get things off the ground but, wait, wait. can i jump in that was when i got this idea about sharing the stories the real stories three years ago <laughs> it takes time, High five. It, takes time. <laughs> it takes time it takes time yeah but um i was stand. i was standing around um a bonfire and with a group of amazing people. And one of the things that we were doing was like, we were expressing our shame and we were going to throw it into the bonfire. And we kind of did a couple of rounds. It was this amazing exercise. The person who ran it was beautiful. And um, once you get to the past the first round where you say the thing that's top of mind, the subconscious starts to come out because it's going around a bit too quickly. And you're like, oh my God, I can't think. And sex was the thing that came out for me. Um, and my inability to discuss it, to be able to ex- to relate to it, to be able to understand what intimacy meant to me, why I felt certain ways about sex. Um, and at the end of it, I was like, oh my God, just saying it out loud, that I feel so much shame around me, myself and my sexuality, made me realize that I can't be the only one. Um, and fast forward a couple of years, I've been talking to friends about it and I was on a, an amazing road trip in Scotland and I was like, oh, okay, everyone who I speak to who is South Asian has something that they feel about this topic that either comes from home, culture or religion. And so I was like, well, if anyone's going to do it, it might as well be me. But it's really scary, right? Because mm-hmm. especially being Muslim, um, there are a lot of people who don't believe that this is something that should be expressed so openly and externally. And I was really worried about the backlash that may bring. It hasn't so far. So far, everyone's been incredibly supportive. Um, But yeah, that was kind of the moment. It was like my own therapeutic kind of journey. Um, Sex therapy is also incredible at being able to find like those points for you that that really trigger you in both good ways and Mm -hmm. bad ways. Um, and I realized we don't have these conversations and especially men, because brown bodies is women and men. I think the role of pleasure uh, in brown men is just so under discussed. And that was actually the second key moment. The bonfire was one and the second was speaking to to a South Asian man who told me he felt exactly the same. So, yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you. It's incredible that you actually, when you really do something you believe in, you remember those uh, breaking points where like, okay, it's happening. I'm going to pursue that. And then you know that that's really your way, your direction, and you have Mm -hmm. to give it a try. There is no other way. You just have to try it and you forget all the potential failures or fears. 
the fear is smaller than your wish to get closer to that change. Yeah. yeah. But that's very interesting to hear right now, you opening up for those new um, opportunities that are both exciting and also, I think, scary at the same time. So I would like a bit to hear about your current perception of this world, because I found this one article written by you back in 2017, where you wrote, I think it was on Medium, my quarter life crisis and how did the dengue experience open up the eyes of my world? So it's been six years ago, I think. Uh, how did your perception of this world change over those six years? Yeah, um, I wrote that dengue article in 2017. And then a year later, I got <laughs> diagnosed with an autoimmune illness. Um, oh, I know, right? So fun. The thing that people know about me if they've known me for a long time. Um, and that was in the middle of running 23 Code Street quite successfully. We, mm -hmm. as actually probably the end of 2017, it was December 2017 into 2018. Yeah. So it's that same year I wrote that piece. Um, oh my goodness. I know. It was kind of like illness after illness, but anyway. And I sort of feel like it was a bit of a blessing in disguise, um, getting sick. I know I should never say that really, but, and I never would wish it upon anyone, but it mm -hmm. made me slow down. Um, it made me have to do a few things. One was I had to relinquish control to someone else in the company, which is honestly the biggest lesson I think I've ever learned in my entire life. It's like, how do you trust people enough to have the goals of the company at top of their mind, not just your own mind, and also trusting that you're not the person who can do everything and you're not the best person to do everything. Um, when you're really young and in your early 20s, you, that is how you feel. You're like, well, I can do it better. Why would I let someone else do this bit? And you end up having too many fingers and too many pies, and it's a lot. Um, so I think that perception changed of myself in a really big way that actually maybe my skill was hiring smart people and my skill hadn't been to let those smart people do their best work <laughs> um and I got a coach in to help me do that because I really struggled I really struggled to be a good manager but more importantly to be a good leader um the second thing that really changed for me was my perception of success Hmm. How did that change? Yeah, success, I think, initially for me was twofold. It meant financial success. Um, but to be honest, financial success so that I could support my family. Less so for me. There was definitely a part of I want a nice place and I want to be able to travel. That's always been there in the back of my head. But the other bit of success was the impact that I create externally. So 23 Code Street for every person we taught in the UK we paid for training of digital skills um in Mumbai in India and so that was like those were my success metrics like my success metrics mm -hmm. for money and impact so very external achievement oriented very externally very mm -hmm. externally and that was when I got sick I was like hold on if I'm sick I can't do any of this And so what I optimize for now is very different. I optimize for health. I optimize for time. And when I say health, I mean mental as much as physical. Um, 
but having freedom of time is probably my highest metric of success now. Um, time to see my friends and my family, which I didn't do until my mid twenties, and it sounds so stupid. Um, and then figuring out what financial success actually meant to me, like not some arbitrary number of I want to make a million by the time I'm twenty one, right? Which was, I think, you've <laughs> been there, done that. <laughs> you made a million at twenty one. That was the way. <laughs> no, unfortunately, not yet. I think that was such a. That was such a big thing. And I think, again, like the Mark Zuckerberg story really played a part in all of us feeling like that. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It was and, a big one. Yeah. Whereas now I'm much more specific. Like, what does be very specific about what financial success means to you because it becomes much more achievable? Is it buy a house? Is it I want to be able to travel to 15 countries in one year and stay in five star hotels in every single one? Is it that you want to buy a Ferrari? Like whatever it is, like be very specific. Like for me, for example, mm-hmm. at the moment, it could be very health related. Like I want to be able to have a nutritionist. I wouldn't mind having a personal chef to figure out what's going on with my dietary stuff. You know, like those very specific totally. goals are more financially success than saying I want a million. Like what does that really like mean? Well, you just want to have a million in your bank and then maybe that million will make you happy. <laughs> and then all the problems will out of a sudden disappear. Maybe. <laughs> oh my God, that's very interesting how life sometimes puts us into the situations where we're like, I don't know, dealing with some really challenging issues that makes us to realize, okay, to redefine the success, to redefine the life uh, we want to live. But what after listening to... Uh, for for you right now for quite a while you kept mentioning i've got a coach i've got a mentor i've got some guidance i think it would be very interesting to learn how do you find when you don't maybe not necessarily have the broad network or access and you're like just stuck in, into this point where i really want to change uh, and to become more independent to gain more freedom in my life but i don't know where to start it's a really hard question um it is Because I think having a mentor, there are all these kind of official mentorship programs. And personally, Mm -hmm. that's never been something I've looked for. And I would say that my biggest mentors aren't people I call mentors. And they would be really angry if I called them that to their faces or ever referred to them as that. They would say they were my friends. So I think it's look up to the people who are maybe two or three steps ahead of you on the journey you want to be on. And be like, can we have a discussion? Can I take you for lunch? Can I potentially like have a conversation with you? I have three very specific questions I want to ask and relationship build with that person. Um, I always think someone who is like 10 steps ahead of you, who now looks back with rose tinted glasses, isn't the right person to be a mentor. Um, On the coach and therapy front, that's a bit easier. Because you can get a therapist kind of anywhere. Obviously, the the issue is finance. It is expensive unless you have insurance that covers it, which I'm very lucky I do. Um, but therapy, I think, has been really fantastic at me being able to unravel what my priorities are and what are the things that keep me in my head and that make me anxious at night. And it's not always the things that I thought they were. Um, and a coach... 
It kind of depends. There are some incredible career coaches. Uh, there's a woman called Ellen who runs something called The Ask. There's a man called Carl Martin. And I think he runs something called PeerPod. I think mm. those coaches who are very career-focused and career-driven can help you get to the next step. And they're not part of big organizations too. They've worked in the tech ecosystem. I think they're a great place to start if you're looking at changing careers. Um, but what I was referring to very specifically was I had executive coaching, um, mm, wow. which is stupidly expensive. It's so much money. Um, but for me, that has been the number one biggest change in my leadership skills has having mm. has having that person uh, by my side been. Yeah, it's a very good tip, I think, if someone who wants to improve on their leadership journey as well. So now to anyone who is about to embrace the change and they just need that final kick, what would Anissa say to that person? Oh, I would say just jump, but I know that's really hard, especially, and I will say this, and I know it's a bit of a brushing everyone with the same paintbrush, but... um. A lot of women feel like they need to know everything before they start something. They'll read every book on the topic. They'll research every platform. And then you see this 21-year-old guy outside of college who's just like, builds an MVP using Bubble. And you're like, ah, so <laughs> annoying. Like, I wanted to do that. And I've done all this yeah. research and I know so much. And there's a balance. There's a balance between being that person who just jumps in and do it and that person who researches every single thesis that's ever been written on the topic you are never going to be ready. So I think my like biggest tip, you are literally never going to be ready, is to do the smallest thing first. What is the one thing you can do that just gives you a kick up the butt to say, okay, this is now in the public realm, I have to do it. Uh, it could be a LinkedIn post to say, I'm going to start this thing, keep me accountable. It could be a landing page. It could be a Twitter account. You could even build a one-pager MVP of what the product is because you want to get it into people's hands, right, quickly as possible to see what people think, which is the really scary bit because 100 people will come back and tell you it's shit. But one person may come back and say, hey, look, I really think this idea is great, but here's some feedback. And that's what you're looking for. Um. So yeah, just do that one small bit first and surround yourself with incredible, incredible people, your peer group, people who you know will have your back. Don't trust their feedback necessarily because they love you, <laughs> but make sure they're there to support you and be like, press the button, hit enter, submit, like share it online, whatever it is. Just have those, have your buddies by your side or your family, whoever that person is to you. Incredible. I couldn't agree more. Uh, start small and you don't need to do the extensive research for two years before you start testing. It doesn't have That's to be extensive. Especially, especially us uh, female entrepreneurs really tend into too much going into details, too much being not ready rather than just going and taking the actions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, that was a big, big pleasure, Anisha. And finally, we're kind of getting, uh, maybe not finally, we're getting to the end, unfortunately, I would say. But um, so I'm a fan uh, of traditions and rituals. I think it really keeps you accountable and keeps you grounded. 
And um, I really love to be part of something where you can have a connection and engagement. So I thought that I don't want it to be just some kind of one-way podcast where we cannot connect with um, each other, with the audience. So I just wanted to kind of create some homework for all of us after each episode. So kind of starting a tradition and we are kicking off right now first episode and the tradition, which I kind of decided to call Perception Puzzle, where I will invite guests to leave our listeners with a thought-provoking question. So I have a question for you. What question would you like to share with our dear listeners to dive into today as they continue their journey of perception and self-discovery? I'm going to try and articulate this succinctly, but my question to you is, what do you value as success? And really define what that means to you and then optimize for it. And I'll give you a very quick example. If your definition of success is, I want to be able to work and travel, getting a career in a big consultancy where you have to be in the office every day isn't probably going to be the thing that gets you there. So optimize for the thing that you see as success, and then no decision can be the wrong decision. Is that a question? What do you Let me ask the question. Is that a question? Is that yeah. a, let, okay, let me ask the, a question. question. A question and you're a follow-up, finalize the question, yeah. Yeah, the, fi- the, question, <laughs> the question is, what do you define as success? Thank you. That was brilliant, Anissa. It's been a pleasure exploring your journey here. And thank you so much for taking time twice and believing in this. And um, I guess the final question would be, where can people follow your journey and learn more about what you do? Oh, on that terrible platform called LinkedIn. Uh, I'm Anissa Osman-Bresner. Yes. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Anissa underscore OB. And of course, Brown Bodies um, is on Substack. So please give us a follow there. It would be lovely to get your feedback on what you think. It's for everyone. The focus is brown people, but everyone is welcome. Thank you so much for being here today, Anissa. Thank you for having me. You're an incredible host. Thank you, everyone, so much for tuning in for this first episode of Perception Paradox. Thank you, dear Anissa, and I value your thoughts and want to hear from you. After listening, please share your feedback and let me know who would you like to hear from in future episodes and how can we improve. And just so you know, your time and support mean the world to me and have a fantastic day wherever you are.